Hello and welcome to Under the Skin, starring me, your host, Russell Edward Ignatius Proudfoot. That's my favourite Buff- name. Ignatius. What am I? Yeah. I'm not finish saying my own name. <laughs> Did you say Buffin? I was going to say Bartholomew. Brand. Right, now i it. <laughs> now, what's your favourite? Ignatius is good. And I told you this before, Ignatius and Sebastian. I think James's brother's called Ignatius because I hear he call him Iggy. Yeah, so. Iggy. Iggy. Like, is Iggy Pop called Ignatius? Yeah, it must be. Or Ignola. Is that a name? <laughs> Isn't the problem Ignatius, it sounds too much like ignorant? No. But doesn't... Oh, I nearly said something. <laughs> what? What did you say? <laughs> well, go on. No, you're going to get angry. At me. I will. <laughs> I'm not going to say it. I will get angry. Go on, say it. Well, brands and like... Bland? Yeah. Yeah, but brand, firebrand, branding iron. <laughs> yeah, but Ignatius. Ignatius. Ignite. Yeah, but you just wobbled Ignite. your head back and forth like Willow <laughs> Willow Smith. All right, wait a second, because I've not finished talking yet. Um, anyway, Jira's going to be on this podcast, Jen. No. Gabor Mate. That's oh. who's coming on. Dr. Gabor Mate. <laughs> I, and I'm disappointed you surprised. don't know, because you're meant to be the editor and producer. Anyway, let's, why not? Tell Buant, like Buanzo Stilana, that's the name of your mate. Yeah, like Buns of Steel. Buns of Stilana. Buns of Stilana. All oh, right, that, this is the t shirt made for me by Angela. Have a look at it. You should get your own. Follow her on Instagram. She's terrific. <coughs> <laughs> oh, Jen, I breathe some spit down my neck pipe. <laughs> the Flemings attacked you. Listen, you're, <laughs> you've been attacked by do your you own. Do you know what Flem? we call you? We call you Flemmy Jenny. No. Flem Jen. No. Yep, let's get it to catch her on hashtag Flemgen. I bet it, I bet you next week you get sent at least one letter saying Flemgen. One letter. Yeah, one little letter, Flemgen, it will say. Now, this is a good conversation with Gabor Mate. Do you like Gabor? Yeah, he's great. He's beautiful, he's compassionate, he's a wise bodhisattva. We love him on the podcast. He's a regular guest, he's a wise man, he's an elder. I adore him. I know, I didn't know if he would like to being called an elder. Oh, yeah, he did that whole story about he didn't see himself as one. No one likes to see Yeah, but, know, why not? I don't mind. Anyway, this is some comments on the Amishi Jar episode. Now time for comments. Did you enjoy that? It was pretty good, actually. She talked about those networks of yeah, consciousness. Yeah, attention didn't she? and focus. Yeah, it's interesting. Eric the Hippie says, or is it Erica the Hippie? Erica the Hippie says, I absolutely love neuroscience. Oh, <laughs> that's nice. It's amazing what our brains can do. Also, as an avid meditator... And how it's helped me in the past is a game changer. It's incredible. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? Thanks, mate. Listen to shout outs. Pauline Andrew. I started listening to you on Luminary last year and I thoroughly enjoyed the variety of guests on your show so much so that I've gone back to the very beginning and I'm listening to them from the start of your podcast. Informative and entertaining. I can just politely ask that that phlegm mouthed no. Irish woman. Be removed from now for every more. A lot of what that's what it says, Jen. <laughs> well, you want me to know how to read it out? You want me to know how to read it out? I've got to read it out, I know. And don't say that the English speak like rabbits. <laughs> that's funny, you meant. You said that, and you said that the Irish and the Americans speak at the back of their mouth using the same muscles. Well, they're similar, more similar. Go on then, let's do some examples. You're Irish, I'm English. Let's yeah. see what this is like. Pam. Right. Huh? Pam. <laughs> Palm. <laughs> you right. say palm. It's all like up the front. Palm. I don't go palm. <laughs> oh, oh palm of the hand. Yeah. What do you think I was saying? I thought you were saying Pam. Like, you know, like Pam. Pam, the lady down your road. Pam. <laughs> no, I call my Pam. Like, Pam. Pam. Can I have a slice of ham, Pam? Pam. Like, calm. No, calm, Jen. Calm. Like, arm. But you can't, you can't say... Are you calm, Pam? But we, you. Have How would you essay... say, "Are you calm?" Are you to someone calm, called Pam? Pam. <laughs> right. So you meet someone called Pam, and you want to ask her if she's calm. You say s- it. Are you calm, Pam? <laughs> calm. Are you calm, Pam? Calm. calm down, Pam. 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 I'm telling you. But you have an Essex accent, so sometimes it goes a bit. But why are you saying that we've got up the front like rabbits? <laughs> because it's more finicky and narrow, isn't it? What are we? This English, the Queen Elizabeth. Yeah, well, some David Bowie, married, right? David Bowie, Queen Elizabeth. <laughs> David Bowie, Queen yeah. Elizabeth. English, Queen Elizabeth, David Bowie, John Lennon. Yeah. Who else we got? That's it. No, hold on, there's some others. There's some good <laughs> Paul ones. Paul McCartney. Yeah. Elton John. Yeah. Oscar Wilde. No. 
<laughs> that was a little trickaroo. We've got the best riders, haven't we? Well, we've got WB Yates, Oscar Wilde, Oscar Wilde, James Joyce. What's our man there? Beckett. Yeah, oh, he's great. They're some of the greats. That's not even all of them. You're yeah. Irish. It's writing in English. You yeah, can't, I know. You can't whack them, can you? They're the, they're, they're the best. Actually, I don't. I, I don't like to say this, but in front of you but I love Irish people and Ireland <laughs> you look really regretful until I, I met you it was an unqualified <laughs> love <laughs> yeah maybe we're just a bit sad all the time who the Irish yes Not all, all, of all them. the riding what about the jolly Irish which ones are they the merry Irish the drunk ones is that what you're saying For river dance <laughs> why do you think they're happy is that well like... they look pretty upbeat kicking they around look like stressed, that jumping up and down like that yeah it does look a bit intense doesn't it it is intense. Mind you, you can do it. And didn't no, your father tell you that you must always do it when an no. Englishman requests it of you? <laughs> Never. River dance now for the... Why did he think that the English were going to ask you to do it? What do you think he foresaw? He just thought that you picked on us. The English? Yeah. Accents and telling us what to do. But he thought that the English wanted to see you river dancing. <laughs> Maybe I mentioned it. <laughs> I actually do. And I think it's because of the phenomenon of river dance. Well, he said that you mentioned it. Aha. Uh -huh. So he didn't just say it out of the blue. <laughs> you went home. what he said. Well, you I didn't go home and say the English are trying to make me dance. You did. You went back to the village <laughs> after one of your very casual light weeks of work and went back and said, the English are up making me river dance, Dad. Any guidance? And Mr. May Finn said, Nerry Nerry River Dance for those, yeah. the, for the Brits. Yeah, Brit. Well, he called you. Oh, I can't say it because it's. What did he say? A racist thing about us. <laughs> More of a sectarian, is that it? We mustn't be sectarian. We must learn to love one way. another. He doesn't think it's real. No, he nothing's real. Smart. We're all one. Yeah. Glory, glory unto thee, Almighty God. Right now, hold on. Let's see what else is going on. There's another one. Stefania and Ash. Hey, Russell and Jen. Your podcast with Vandana Shiva was brilliant. I've been following her writing and environmentalist contributions for some time. She was a major influence on me deciding to do a master's in climate change and development. I must share my gratitude for work you both do, merging. Both of us. You don't, Jen don't do nothing. We both do. do no, you do, don't you, Jen? You work hard, Thanks. do you? Yeah. Did when? you not see my doc earlier? I thought it was good. Which one? What was for some, Pinchbeck? Yeah, I don't think you used it. Though. I did. I was going through it. I was going through it. I always use it, Jen. Or like sometimes in the podcast, I think... What am I going to say to these people? <laughs> <laughs> See what Jen would say if she was in here. I think for a special treat, we should you should do one. I don't think that would be good. Why? Who would you do it with? But my questions are very basic. All right, do a podcast with me now. Well, I do remember this is the we are. <laughs> yeah, but I'm the guest. Go on. You've got to go How welcome to the skin of Jenny. When you wake up in the morning. <laughs> That's your opener. <laughs> yeah. How do you feel when you wake up in the morning? Yeah. All right. Okay. Well, Jen, uh, oh, hold on. Let me remember. Sort You've of just I feel, woken up. I'm remembering it. <laughs> I feel a bit like, oh, no, I've woke up a bit too late and now I'm not going to see up. my kids. Yeah, woke up a bit too late, Jen. <laughs> we English speak a like a lat. So you sleep in? I don't like your tone, by the way. <laughs> New under the skin, aggressive. New aggressive under skin, hurt one another. Do you ever have moments of inevitability of death? <laughs> always. I'm always thinking about or that. Like, you know, when you're in bed, it could actually be happening because you're not really sure what's going on. You feel like you could actually be dying now or like death know, is coming. I'm, yeah, it's very, because very this is what present I feel. when I'm at like three in the morning, half asleep. Look, Jen, this is what I feel. <laughs> when you die, it will be yeah. a moment like this one. No, awesome. I don't think... I think it'll be much more dramatic. <laughs> what do you think? How do you think you're going to die? Falling off an horse it feels on like the back a of a boat like chasing an elephant around an ark? Do you ever gasp when you wake in the middle of the night? Hmm? Do you ever, like, gasp in the middle of the night? I gasp when I listen to your questions. <laughs> I gasp at the ghoul. Yeah. I gasped happened last the... night, I think. What, you gasped? Some, yeah, sometimes I sh weird stuff happens. Do a little gasp now for us. No. Why? Show us your gasp. Well, no. did your dad say don't do that? Yeah, don't, don't show do anything the English for the English. Dance. Don't show him your gasp. It's not good enough. No. Start gasping and start river dancing. What is it called anyway? Traditional Irish dance? Oh, uh, Irish dancing. Right. It's not river dancing. That's like a brand. Yeah, flatly. Yeah. 
That's no people don't go in in long groups dancing. My life, wife loved loved flat. I know. She I've seen her talk about them. She's passionate. She knows all what happens at every moment of the music. Yeah, she says she, it gets her go really and, going. Like, what's it, Mastermind? And talk about Flatley. Mm. Do they have Mastermind now? Yeah. I'm starving. Are you? So I'm so hungry. I've got to go next thing. Okay, get, you need to go through the podcast more. I've been following her writing. I must share my gratitude for the work you both do, merging such deep thinking philosophy with spiritual nuances is what we need. It brings so much fresh perspective and joy. Stefania Anash or Anache. Grazie mille. Yeah, that's what I say. Thank you for that. Thank you very much. Okay, so we'll be moving on to Gab or Matty, but before that, have you listened to Above the Noise lately, my guided meditation? It is the way to unlock the hidden potential within you, to find peace, to escape from the bombardment of uh, negativity that you may feel is surrounding you. Also, come and see me on tour in 2022. If you go to russellbrand.com or click in the link in the description here, you can see where there's tickets. Come and see me in Hammersmith at the end of January or the beginning of February. I'll be at Hammersmith. You can come there. Come to Aylesbury if you're near there. Come to Margate. Come see me in all these places. Follow around after me. Uh, I signed up for my mailing list. Sign up for that. And are you watching all my YouTube channels? I hope so, because you'll see some pretty good stuff on there. But now it's time for Under the Skin with me and Gabo Mate. Some of you will be deeply relieved to know that Jenny won't talk for at least the duration of this chat. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand. Under the Skin. Gabor Mate, thank you for coming on Under the Skin. Pleasure to be with you again. What do you think we're going to do, Gabor? That doesn't it does it you've been last time we spoke, we spoke a lot about Palestine and Israel. Now it feels like, you know, as is often the case with such issues, the sort of the news cycle moves on, even with perennial and ongoing problems. And now it seems like American domestic issues are what sort of dominates the global news cycle. The whether it's the trial and reaction to the trial of Carl Rittenhouse, ongoing concern, confusion around the pandemic and its regulation. What themes do you observe in both the media and public life? Hmm. <laughs> you like to start with the easy questions, do yeah, you? Yeah, I basically just, I realised as I sort of stopped talking that what I said is, what's going on everywhere now? <laughs> <laughs> Well, of course, it's all a matter of perspective, but um, what I'm seeing is um, the increasing breakdown of a culture that was always riven with contradictions and divisions and uh, and hatreds uh, and inequalities and fears and deep anxieties and violence. But the facade has uh, cracked. So I think what we're seeing is more of the long-term underlying dynamics uh, that have been there for decades and even hundreds of years, but which can no longer be papered over. That's that's how I understand it. Now, at the same time, uh, the degree of fear and anxiety and suspicion and um, hostility is rising. Mm. Um and uh, society is less capable of pretending to itself that these factors are not there. That, that's what I see happening. That's what it feels like to me as well. And given that you're, I don't know if it's the right way to describe it, that, but seemingly your induction and your expertise comes from dealing with deeply traumatized, spiritually broken people in particular in the form of addicts do you feel that there's a, a sense that this trauma that was once seen as a condition of the marginalized is becoming somehow central and pervasive yeah well j just maybe to um <clears throat> amplify or i should say maybe correct what 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 you said 
working, my working with addictions was a part of what I did. Um, but my experience with trauma and my interest in it, and I'm, and I'm saying this to answer your question, uh, goes far beyond my experience working with the marginalized and highly addicted population of Vancouver's downtown east side. As a family practitioner, I saw trauma everywhere and in all manner of illness, at all levels of society, um, uh, in all strata, um, and, and in all generations, and in showing up and manifesting in dysfunctions of the mind and the body. That's professionally speaking. Personally speaking, of course, as you know, my history, I've been through trauma myself, and much of my adult life has been and continues to be uh, working through that trauma in my, in my own life. And so um, I haven't, I've never seen trauma as restricted only to one section of our population. Um, it it uh, doesn't spare anyone. And um, there's a friend of mine who I may have mentioned to you before, um, Dr. Bruce Alexander, who is a psychologist here in Vancouver, who wrote a book called uh, The Globalization of Addiction. And he talks about this concept of dislocation, where people get cut off from meaning, from connection with themselves and with society. And he says that dislocation, and, and, and he sees dislocation as a major driver of uh, addiction. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. And he, he says that this society, a Western globalized capitalist society, um, is unique in, in the sense that dislocation on a massive level can happen in any society under crisis, but in this society, it happens as a matter of course. Uh, and, and he says it happens to all strata, strata of the population. So I think we're recognizing that more, but I think it's always been true. Because it seems like a, some, perhaps somewhat weary analysis, but but it's something that I can recognize is that as a person whose um, rubric for understanding my personal reality, my emotional life, dealing with ongoing problems, ordinary and occasionally extreme, I use the models of addiction and attachment which seem analogous to me that I'm all right I've become overly dependent on that I'm trying to control this issue I need to surrender let's try a different perspective let's look for support from other people where can I be grateful all of the things that are mostly derived from a 12-step understanding but you know I spoke to um, the, the person that wrote the dopamine book who says that one of the preconditions or a pre one of the preconditions for addiction is availability of the substance you know like if there's a, if heroin is widely available and easily accessible you will see you know it's sort of obvious and ordinary you'll see a spike now I wonder how uh, you know with the now fully immersive access to technology and technological devices coupled with these this feeling of dislocation and alienation I, I began to feel that it might mean that we'd be dealing with a culture of addiction that we're no longer dealing with addiction as a marginal issue and as you say in your practice that accompanies or even precedes your um, dealings with real extreme drug addicts you've noted that addiction is you know um, ubiquitous but now it, as you say like that 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 dislocation that dislocation doesn't seem like a rare but an ordinary thing I, I start to wonder if we might be entering some kind of hyper state that that we're, that we're beginning to we're beginning to experience the impossibility of um, a, the the impossibility of the, the of solutions emerging from the models that we're currently living within that it's going to get worse that that no one was going to be able to use tech without an awareness around it you everyone's going to have to be like aware of oh I'm using this addictively and the way that we're consuming information and the understanding that information is exacerbating our feelings of alienation and fear so i'm wondering if like you know as you say we're starting to see something puncture and come forth that has has long been present but not been so pronounced i wonder if that's what might be being asked of us is a new modality 
a new way of dealing with reality that is a kind of a new sort of spiritual system that we, that, we, that the old solutions aren't going to work anymore, or at least the current solutions, by which I mean cultural, secular and political solutions that are offered consumerism, entertainment and distraction. They're, in, they're in, entering a kind of end cycle. Well, uh, you know, back in, in, in a sense, there's nothing new. Uh, back in the 1940s, a great spiritual teacher and one of the great Catholic writers of the 20th century, Thomas Merton, wrote his uh, biography, The Seven Story Mountain. And he says, and I think he wrote this in 1948 or so. And, he, and, and I could find a quote on my cell phone, but I won't bother looking for it. But he basically says that nowhere since the since imperial rome has a society been so driven to magnify and hook people into cheap letty petty lusts and pursuits than the culture of capitalism he said this in 1948 well, what would you say today so that this is not a new dynamic um what is new is that, um, as you say, the, the technology has magnified it and has metastasized it. it it's impossible to live in a society and not have uh, dysfunction and addictive appeals um, broadcast into your home. And children are, are, are being subject to this um, from an early age on. And and the and it's not uh, accidental. It's not just simply a spontaneous byproduct of the system. Again, I'm I'm recalling your interview with Edward Snowden, who talked about these um, conspiracies out in broad daylight. That he says we're inured to. We don't even notice them. He said, "Well, when it comes to technology, it's it's not just neutral." It, was deliberately designed, for example, um, to appeal to the circuits of the brain that hook people into addictions, the dopamine circuits, the endorphin circuits, and so on. And so these products are, are, are circulated and, 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 and um, pervade to children with a deliberate attempt to make them addicted to the technology itself. And it works beautifully from the point of view of the manufacturers and those who profit from it. Now, the reason it's so addictive, apart from the direct assault on the brain's circuitry um, that is engaged in addiction, is the word that you used before. You said attachment. But I think when you said attachment, you meant in the Buddhist sense of being attached, hooked into something. Well, th that's true. But here's what happens. Human beings are born with certain needs to belong, to be in contact, um, to have meaning in their lives. The, 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 these are needs that we have to be uh, seen, to be heard. Now, these are needs that are usually met if a culture is functioning well in the context of healthy attachment relationships. And by attachment, in this case, I don't mean the Buddhist terms of craving and, and, and obsessive, compulsive engagement with. I'm talking about the context of loving relationships, the healthy attachment relationship. Now, here's what happens. The less our, our healthy needs for attachment are met early in life, the more likely we are then to be attached to externals later on to try and meet those same needs. So the lack of healthy attachment leads to the unhealthy attachment, if I can put it that way. And, and so if you look at something like Facebook, it's a lot, of, a lot of it is about unmet attachment needs. What do people do on Facebook? They like each other. That's an attachment dynamic. It's a substitute for love, but it's highly addictive because when you're liked on Facebook, you always have this niggling sense that do they like me or do they like the face that I present? It's not called Facebook for nothing. People present a face to the world. That's not really them. And that never satisfies. So you have to, get, have to keep having more and more of it. So the more people like you, the more you need people to like you. 
It's highly addictive. On Facebook, people have friends. That's an attachment dynamic. But they're not real friendships because, again, they don't know you. And it doesn't matter how many friends you get. There's always the niggling suspicion that, well, if they knew me, really, would they still be my friends? So you have to keep proving to yourself how many friends you've got. So in, in a nutshell, the... And, and you know, I'm really glad to tell you, and I don't want to say much about it now, but I just finished, finally, after 10 years, finished writing my next book, which is called The Myth of Normal. And, and what I'm saying is that in this society, what's taken for normal is actually totally abnormal from the point of view of human needs. So normally speaking, in terms of what happens in a society, normally, and I put that in quotation marks, people don't get their needs met. And then this society is past master at creating false needs that then people substitute for the real ones. And this is the appeal of technology. You get to belong, you get to be heard, you get to be seen, you get to be liked, you get to be engaged, you get to get excited, you get to get, have meaning in your life. And most of it is false. Therefore, it doesn't satisfy. And again, as my brilliant uh, medical friend, Dr. Vince Felitti says, it's hard to get enough of something that almost works. <laughs> so there you have the addictive appeal of, of, of technology. It's hard to get enough of something that almost works. That's a good quote. This... Um rhetorical relationship that you are referring to between the uh, temporary satisfaction, near satisfaction of a like or of a virtual friend and this ongoing ulterior awareness of its insufficiency, insufficiency to me <clears throat> seems, I, I really recognise this, not only in the technological plane but in fact in all all encounters all transactions that until i began to accept the idea of a inner connection to a higher or if not higher different consciousness that i continued to experience this sense of lack i like what you said about if the initial imprinting is not successful we continue to look for we continue to look for imprint like we like sort of infantile imprinting on anything like a sort of a goose mating with a golf ball or a duckling following a cat as a result of like an insufficient early relational uh, connection I'm reminded of, again, something that recur occurs to me frequently, the idea that on the material, like in this, the smallest, uh, inverted commas, observable level of material reality, nothing can be said to be there at all except for how it exists relationally uh, in relationship. And what I feel like is that we're being sort of stimulated into unnatural states or fear states or desire states that are sort of heightened and, and not normal, uh, unusual pathologies, then sustained there and held there. Now, again, I suppose it feels like there is no route out of that dynamic in this direction. Like you, 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 it's hard to have enough of something that almost fulfills you or whatever that quote was. You know, if we continue to like, you know, because look at the, the solutions we're offered are, what if we just give Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or another, you know, these brilliant entrepreneurs and brilliant materialist rationalists, these geniuses in these areas, enough scope and rope eventually a solution will appear and there is such suspicion around spiritual values there's such suspicion around our origins in shamanism our ability to shift between levels of consciousness in one of our conversations a couple ago when i was in australia in fact at the beginning of the pandemic you described this sort of pacific islanders who are able to sort of piece together reality based on sort of tiny movements of migrating birds and fish and currents and winds a reality that feels total and immersive like we have the capacity 
for that level of stimulation and to be hum in harmo in harmony with it rather than this uh, discordant reality of unfulfilling stimulation that i know so well as an addict and i know so well even in recovery the sugar rush the screen love the lust all these things that i feel like i'm continually combating i wonder where you find yourself now gabor do you find how what is your relationship with craving and longing what fulfillment do you feel about your grown-up children and their success what do you feel longing still within your marriage do you feel frustration and loss uh, with your uh, growing uh, the, the the respect that you have as a thinker and as a writer what is your relationship with loss and longing what is your relationship with fulfillment now Getting personal, are we? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to say to you. <laughs> I'm just well, following it, these currents, Gabor. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, last couple of days, my wife and I have had a really difficult time. Um, this is after... This is a month after having, no, a few weeks after having celebrated, beautifully celebrated our 52nd wedding anniversary. But if you had had a spy camera in our house last night, you would have seen a very dysfunctional couple, um, really not understanding each other, not even trusting each other. That's what you would have seen. And now, that settled down really quickly. But it's not, you know, it really did. And because the underlying, the recognition that the love between us is both underlying and undying, that floods back in much more quickly now than it used to in our earlier days. But that doesn't mean that we can't have this breakdown. As far as, and, and so, yeah, we also are much more empowered in, in, in addressing it, but it, it's not like we're floating on this cloud of joy all the time. As far as my success in the world is concerned, um, deeply satisfying to be able to speak to a lot of people and to have a listening, a respectful listening and, and a validation and, and, and gratitude that does come my way, even love that comes my way quite a lot. But on a bad day, it doesn't mean a thing. <laughs> I can be just as miserable as I've ever been, you know, in, 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 in my skin too. Um, so how that external lands for me depends very much on the internal climate. So that's, I really have to take care of that. Um, and so th th that's what I can tell you. It's, it's, a, it's a constant dance, you know. It's a constant dance between uh, the programmed in despondence and, 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 you know, and, and alienation and dislocation and uh, what is not sufficiently present for me, if I can evaluate it that way, is what I do see in some others is, is a unbroken connection to something higher. You know, for me, that's less, I maybe haven't worked that much in that field. I've done some work in that area, but not perhaps enough. And so, because of how I've been feeling the last couple of days, <laughs> yesterday I started reading that bookshelf behind me, which you can see sort of in profile at the end of the curtain. Uh, it's a black thing at the back there. It's full of spiritual books, which I've barely looked at. But every time I have a spiritual crisis, I go out and buy some more spiritual books. <laughs> so I started dipping into one of them. Which one? Which I, it's called um, "A Path with Heart" by Jack Cornfield. Who's a great, who's a great meditation Buddhist teacher, who's been his own trauma, who's been through his own traumas, and who talks about it very, very openly. 
And um, where this takes me back to is when you were talking about these geniuses like Jeff Bezos and so on, they're geniuses, but they don't have heart. They're geniuses up here. But human beings, we're not complete, and I'm talking about myself as well. Uh, we're not complete when we're smart up here. Our smarts up here can lead us to build a better gas chamber if it's not connected to the heart. And so that when you're talking about human knowledge, and I'm speaking very much about myself as well, is that um, we have three brains, really. Uh, I'm talking physiologically, not just metaphorically or spiritually. Yes, we have the brain up here. We have the heart brain, which is the, heart's ha the heart has a nervous system, uh, a kind of brain of its own that's connected to the brain up here. And we have a brain in our gut as well. The gut has many nervous centers, and, and so that gut feelings and heart feelings are information about the state of the world that are at least as essential as the knowledge up here. In the West, and particularly under industrial capitalism, we've um, diminished and dismissed and lost the connection to these other two brains. And so we function from only up here. For myself, it's uh, ongoing work to stay connected to my heart brain as well and to my gut brain as well. And when I lose those connections or when those connections get um, obscured I, I don't do very well I can be smart as hell and I don't do very well at all so that's what I'm reading again uh, Cornfield's Path with the Heart and what's interesting when I read these spiritual books I find myself having underlined certain passages but when I read them again it's like I never read them read them before <laughs> I mean, why didn't you say that in the first place but of course he did say it in the first place just that this brain up here can't compute it. It has to be absorbed in, 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 the, in the heart and gut brain as well. It's curious that a materialist ideology, I mean, of course, a, an ideology underwritten by science and perhaps even scientism that only values the measurable and by default, if not explicitly, dismisses that which can appear ethereal and intangible until until the moment when you need love or God or connection, when it's the only thing that's real, when you're, the rest of your life melts away in the heartbreak or the rest of your life melts away in the despair and suddenly then you do know what's real, you know, and some of the stuff we were talking about in the earlier part of the conversation about sort of not being granted access to these spaces feeling like we're sort of we're in a neurological trap like a cul-de-sac a synaptic cul-de-sac that we've been sort of navigated into i feel that this is um i don't know that it matters whether it's deliberate or not but i know that it's i feel that this is what's happening and I feel that where we are, Gabor, is on the periphery of a necessary spiritual awakening, that this is what we are trying to provoke, that, that it's a, a kind of a, an epiphany jumpstart is what's required, an epiphany jumpstart. And I know you've had even relatively recently kind of profound spiritual experiences and that your curiosity is kind of undimmed and your honesty and your openness and your willingness to admit to your fallibility sometimes when i meet people that don't have that capacity i feel like i'm talking to um you know a yeah a screen or a veneer if i don't get that feeling of people's ongoing fallibility that they're human like me and um how, how do you see your role as an elder now how do you see your role how do you see your role as a public speaker and what is you know i guess when you've written a book and particularly someone like you who writes a book it, it like very judiciously and diligently and over years does that become epochal like a personal epoch that you feel like now your duty is to convey this to embody its understanding to convey it to bring it to people is that where you see yourself now or does it feel like that you're still sort of entrenched in the in the personal 
Well, how, how do you see it the next? How do you see the duties of the next couple of years? Um, well, so before I answer the question, let me riff a bit on something about how you, you talked about this. In, in introduction to this question, you said something about things that we don't see, uh, things that are not material. So I'm going to quote you a great scientist. Her name is Candice Pert, and uh, she's the one actually that found the receptors for endorphins in our brain, in our bodies. So the endorphins are internal opiates, and they have a lot to do with opiate addiction, but also with life in general. And uh, she writes in her book, um, Molecules of Emotion, that unless we can measure something, science won't concede it exists which is why science refuses to deal with such non-things as the emotions, the mind, or the spirit. And what Candice Pert showed in her work is that these non-things, so-called non-things, actually have a material substrate in the body. For example, through the receptors for endorphins, and the endorphins make possible love. Now, love, you can't show in a test tube. You can't measure love in a test tube. Uh, therefore, it doesn't exist, scientifically speaking. But try and living a life without it. Or, 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 or see what happens to any creature, mammalian creature, even a bird, let alone a human being, that doesn't receive love. And so there's a physiological substrate for these so-called non-things. And, and, and unfortunately... Our science, largely, despite all kinds of scientific evidence, by the way, all science tends to ignore all that. At least we ignore it in practice and certainly in medical practice. Now, when it comes to me uh, and my role, um, many years ago when I was in medical practice, uh, I had a patient whose name was Warren Talman, and Talman was a very well-known Canadian poet, and he was a professor of English at the University of British Columbia. And Warren would come and see me with whatever issues he was dealing with in a medical sense, but we'd have these conversations. And uh, I said, I'd say to him, this is in my 40s, maybe even early 50s. And I say to him, Warren, I feel like I want to write, but I don't know what. And once, uh, and I wrote it down when I came home that day. He said, Gabor, he says, you'll write when you have something to teach the world. And that's exactly what happened. Once I started figuring certain things out and how the reality that I observed and, 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 and perceived and, and felt was not being presented to the world, I thought, I got to write. And um, there's another Hungarian physician, his name was Hans or Janos, his Hungarian name, Selye, S-T-L-Y-E. And Selye came from Hungary like me and came to Canada uh, decades, you know, in the 20s. Uh, and, and he's the one that did all the research on stress. And he's actually coined the word stress the way we use it today. And he's a, one of his forgotten figures that should have won a Nobel Prize. And he, at, the time, at, at his time, he was very well known. It's just that, you know, people don't talk about him much anymore. But he said, he, was, he, he wrote this famous book called The Stress of Life. And, 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 and he said that what is in us must out. Otherwise, we get hopelessly hemmed in by frustration. And that also was true for me. If, I, if there was some truth in me that I wasn't, expressing like last time we had this conversation about israel palestine well that whether i'm right or wrong and i'm not going to go into the debate again but when i saw the truth of that if i didn't speak about it i would be hopelessly hemmed in by frustration so there's something in me that just needs to speak the truth by the way just as an aside this is a what they call a rubber bullet that the israelis shoot that Palestinian children's. That's how soft the rubber is. It penetrates the skull. I picked it up myself in Palestine. But, so if I didn't speak the truth about that, I'd be hopelessly hemmed in by frustration. 
then there's another dynamic that happened for me. So, you know, my personal history, a Jewish infant under the Nazis, and then the Russian army comes and saves my life. So I grew up under communism uh, in, in Budapest, a brutal Stalinist dictatorship, but I don't know that. I'm all enthusiastic about party and leader and, 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 and socialism, what they call socialism. And then 1956, when I'm 13, almost, the Hungarian Revolution breaks out against that tyranny. And the scale falls from my eyes, and I get disillusioned. And then I come to the West. And all of a sudden, the Americans are the heroes, and they're, they're, they're the defenders and the upholders of freedom and democracy and, and, and prosperity and all that. Until a few years later, I watch television, and these heroes are slaughtering Vietnamese peasants in, in the brutal Vietnam War, all based on a pack of lies, which was evident to anybody whose eyes are open and has been more than documented since then. So I get disillusioned again. And then I, uh, then I, at the same time, I get all excited about the rebirth of the Jewish state in Palestine, and I don't have to go through that sister again, but I get disillusioned one more time that this was achieved at the price of imposing a nightmare on somebody else, on the Palestinians. So one disillusionment after another. And then I start realizing this is great because every time I get disillusioned, I see a deeper sense of reality. I see a broader view of the world. I see deeper possibilities in the world. And so when people say I was disillusioned, I say to them, would you rather be illusioned or disillusioned? Which would you rather be? Well, most people would rather be most people. Well, I'm not even sure that most people. Many people would rather be disillusioned, in other words, lose their illusions, lose their false views of the world, and see reality. So all these three streams of having something to teach and having something inside me that just needs to come out, and... Um, and, 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 and being interested in disillusioning people in the most positive sense of that word, go into my speaking and into my teaching and into my writing. And that's just my path. So elder or not elder, well, you know, I, I, you know, <laughs> I was on a call um, with a group called Mind Medicine Australia, which is an association in Australia that promotes psychedelic studies and so on. And I was speaking with uh, two other people, one of them, Wade Davis, the anthropologist Wade Davis. And at the end, somebody said, thank you, these three elders. And Wade said, surely you must be talking about Gabor and, and Alberto. I'm not, I don't, I'm not an elder. There's something in me that still resists this designation elder. Because what, elder? I'm still a young guy. I still want to you know, sow my wild oats and, you know, all that. Uh, but yeah, reality is, if I'm not an elder at age 77, then when will I be, you know? So, but my interest now is really, is what it's always been, which is that I'm, I need to speak my truth. I need to uh, remove the veil of illusion over my view of the world and help remove it for others. And, 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 and to teach what I think the world needs to know. That's, that's what I'm doing now. Uh, sometimes I do it well, sometimes I, I may fail at it, but that's, that's my calling. That's what calls me. Do you feel... But it all sounds a bit too valedictory, like I'm, <laughs> I'm saying goodbye somehow. No, uh, no, no, it doesn't sound like that. It yeah, just... I don't, this is not a valedictory, people. At least I don't intend it that way. But you know, you never know, do you? I suppose we don't. But it does, like that. There is an ongoing sense of awakening, awakening after one regime after regime, uh, awakening after awakening. I've started to feel that since uh, since Trump and since Brexit, these two huge events in the Anglo-American empire, it feels that more and more public events have become divided into various charged and oppositional camps since Trump and Brexit. Everything is Trump and Brexit. 
everything is divisive. We're, like that, we're seeing a kind of a a, bifur- a cultural bifurcation that has become so. Uh, what do I want to say? Oppositional and combative. That the idea of a consensual space between them is becoming implausible. And there's like loads of conditions for this that that you know that are contributory that we've touched on already. The nature of technology, the nature of online media, the the commercial imperatives of mainstream media, the necessity of the powerful to divide ordinary people yes. continually, uh, in order you know the the sort of famous mostly British divide and conquer motif, and. I feel that what is required is a new form of communication. Look at like, you know, like I make these videos like, you know, five, seven videos a week on current affairs related issues. And like they, they take the Rittenhouse trial or any that more and more, it feels like difficult to sort of come to people and say, well, wherever you stand on this, if you're a, like, you know, clearly if you're like, say Rittenhouse, if you're a right wing, right wing person, you feel like um, like it's a sort of he was defending himself. If you're a left wing person, he was racist, and like that. It's interesting as an English person, and I know you as a, now a Canadian citizen. When you look at that country in particular, America, do you even see the potential of a of a of a new stability being possible in America when it is so plainly divided almost around every? single issue or do you think that there is a sort of a a kind of a facade to these events and that people live lives abstracted from them in reality Mm. well here's what i think i've recently i've been reading yet another biography of hitler um a new one by a german uh wonderful german writer and um um of course, the question that always uh, arises is how could such a character who was basically a loser, he was a lost, aspirational, but not very talented bohemian, horribly abused in childhood. Um, he just wasn't making it in the world until he discovered his talent, which is to speak to people's deepest grievances and to articulate them and to channel them into certain political directions. But it's clear that without certain social conditions, economic and social and cultural conditions, he just would have remained a fairly unsuccessful and lonely uh, nobody. And in other words, it's not him personally, or not only him personally. Now, it's the same with the Trump. And by the way, uh, they both had the same delusional view of reality, the same capacity to lie seamlessly, and to channel people's grievances. But it takes a society full of grievance and people are, who are ready to listen to simplistic answers mm. to make somebody like that powerful. It's the same with Brexit. And there were, I mean, as, as far as I could tell um, from this distance, there was so much irrationality about the whole Brexit debate. The people who coming more from emotion than ever coming from any kind of rational sense of what's right or what isn't, what is good for the country, what isn't. Because you live in a system that exploits people and that lies to people all the time and always has, people have a deep sense of distrust. But that doesn't mean that they channel their distrust in the right direction. That distrust of... uh, international finance and capitalist manipulation can go into Jew hatred as it did in um, as it did in Germany in the 1930s. So we just live in a society that generates a lot of divisions, a lot of contradictions. And the more it comes under stress as it has right now for a whole lot of reasons, 
is really cracking under its, the weight of its own contradictions. People are going to take more and more extreme positions. And that's what we're seeing right now. Now, which fortunately, though, reminds me of a question that you raised earlier in this conversation, and I realized I didn't quite get to it, which is, um, is there some hope of some neuro-spiritual awakening as a result of all this? Well, this is where a kind of cliched answer, maybe cliched, comes up for me, but it has to do with, do you know, do you know that when the Chinese write crisis, do you know this uh, dynamic is made up of two symbols, the, the Chinese writing these big character letters that these characters stand for symbols. So their word for crisis is an amalg amalgam of two symbols for danger and opportunity. Mm -hmm. So whenever there's a crisis like there is right now, there's a danger. And we can see the danger being manifested in all the violence and the hatred and the suspicion and the paranoia and the... Uh, inequality and all that. But there's also an opportunity for us to learn something here. Um, you, you put that question in spiritual terms. Yes, it has a spiritual dimension, but it also has to do with politics and social dimensions as well. Here's the thing. Are we going to get to a point where spiritually we recognize the unity, the oneness, which is what the great spiritual teachers from Lao Tzu to Buddha to Jesus to Moses and Muhammad have always taught, but not, not to mention the teachers of multiple other spiritual paths, the oneness, that it's all one, that we're all one. Are we going to recognize that communally? Are we going to recognize our communal nature that we were wired for connection and we were wired for compassion? We actually are. There are circuits in our brains for connection and for compassion. And not that that's manifested all the time, but it isn't manifested because the conditions don't evoke it. But are we going to recognize our true nature? Are we going to recognize our true spiritual reality? Are we going to manifest that on a social level, that's the opportunity. The danger is that we're going to go in the other direction towards more fragmentation and more hatred and, and um, more of the status quo in a heightened way. I don't know which way it's going to go. Um, I was talking once with Noam Chomsky, and, and Chomsky was once asked if he was an optimist or a pessimist. And he said, <laughs> and I talked to him about it because I was writing the book, I interviewed him. And he said, well, of course I'm an optimist. Otherwise, you may as well just kill yourself. Mm. He says, but he, but he says, um, strategically, I'm an optimist, and tactically, I'm a pessimist. And that means that in the short term, it's going to get worse. In the long term, I, I, he believes in humanity, and so do I, and I think so do you. So I think we'll stumble our way towards reality. But I think when our cause ourselves and each other a lot of hurt before we get there. That's how I see it. Yes. Yes, Gabor. Yeah, I think you're right. When you said that about Hitler channeling grievances or Trump channeling grievances, it makes me realize that there is a, that in itself, this is a kind of mysticism. It is a mystical ability to access emotionally, to by, um, uh, by, uh, bypass rationality and reach directly to the source, the underlying energetic sources that from which culture, civilization emerge. If you can bypass, you know, when you talk about the c shared and collective grievances, the cultural conditions that can facilitate demagoguery or, or despotism, I feel like this time where, as we touched upon earlier, where there is a sense of overstimulation, increasing fear, increasing desire, people continually being jerked out of serenity, that there is obviously a, 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 an accompanying requirement for a new way to channel our way back to acknowledgement and understanding of the oneness. Increasingly, I feel that because ideas of oneness politically are often um, explored and expressed in themes like globalism, which I think people are 
understandably suspicious of because of the results of globalism and how it's facilitated kind of technocracy and corporatism. I feel that what we might require is a sort of a, like somehow a kind of a devolution so that communities are empowered, accompanied with an acknowledgement and understanding that all of this is emerging from a oneness. This, this, the whole of all material experience is an expression of something finer and sublime that we all have a, an, an inner understanding of, an inner experience of. And when we lose that experience, when we can't gain access to that experience, that there, that despair follows and that we've been taught to synthesize this connection through various material means and until we find our way back home individually i don't i don't see how we can collectively realize it so i'd have to agree with you know your and chomsky's collective diagnosis that there will be some suffering there will be some pain but that there is you know a horizon at least you know when you talk about oneness um it's true, but the question of what kind of oneness? Because if um, Hitler had become ruler of the world, there would have been oneness. Mm. Uh, but that would have been oneness with domination and oneness without heart. So I think when you talk about oneness, you mean a oneness with heart. Uh, and this world doesn't give us that. This, this gives us uh, increasing um uniformity and um and a kind of a copycat emulation of the world's material values internationally so you're getting in the sense this globalization is in a sense of oneness but it's oneness that serves materialism and domination um I think for that oneness that you and I seek, we have to find the heart. And um, that's... Now look, in British Columbia right now, uh, where I live, you, you, you would have read about this, there's been major flooding and whole communities have been... In the summer, we had major heat waves so that one community totally burned down in, in, in British Columbia. Now we have major flooding and communities have been actually washed away by flood, all this is due to climate change. But what immediately emerged is people's compassion and sense of communality, the anglers going down the river, rescuing people and delivering food to isolated communities and people donating money and goods and, you know, just this tremendous outpouring of, of, of communality and, and compassion and caring. Well, that's really essentially our nature. and. Uh, it, it shows up in times like this. Mm. Um, unfortunately, it, it, the, the nature of the society is that it doesn't show up often enough and it doesn't show up so much in our everyday lives. But it, this shows you what's possible. So um, at this point, I've forgotten what question I'm answering, but, that, that's, what, but, but that's what came up for me is that um, it's in us. Yes. It's yeah. in us, and then we can get there. Gabor Mate, thank you so much. It's always wonderful to speak with you. I really love you. I'm looking at what I would love to do over, um, you know, if circumstances permitting. I would love for us to be able to get together either in your country or mine and to do a public event. I would, I would really enjoy that. And if there's anything we can do when your um, book is published, uh, deliberately and directly facilitate the, the um you know the promotion of it then of course i'm available to you always well so doing a public event with you would be a absolute delight for me absolute delight i just love it um and uh as far as the book i expect to be in the uk next fall uh, to promote it so of course i'd i'll gladly exploit any advantage or or, or any support that you give me I'll, I'll happy uh, i'll happily accept it so thank you oh god boy it's lovely to see you thanks for thanks thanks for coming on okay thank you russell take care i love you bye-bye love you too bye-bye
Hello and thank you for listening to Under the Skin with Gabor, Matt, a, and me. Let me know what you thought of it on Instagram. Tag me at Russell Brand or tweet me at Rusty Rockets with the hashtag Under the Skin. Remember, come and see me on tour. I've got loads of dates all over the gaff. It's going to be a fantastic show. You'll love it. Remember to meditate on Above the Noise here on Luminary. And perhaps uh, if you've enjoyed this chat with Gabor, maybe you can try some of these other things. Oh, Jen. <laughs> all of Gabor. Listen to, like how many are there? Others. Huh? I think there's four other episodes. You could listen to f- binge all of the gabble. Yeah. You know he's an addiction expert. <laughs> it's a binge. Yeah. You don't binge. But you won't, you won't feel bad afterwards. You're not going to like do the bit after the binge. What if you have men have been at work or as if you was driving a car and you Who's gonna do collide that? off a tree? What? Collide off a tree. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm a saying, Jen, binging is irresponsible by its Unless nature. Unless it's good for the brain. What could be good to binge? Gabor. Binge. Yeah. He's, he listened to all of them. I don't know about binging. Well, okay, well, then listen to one and then go for a look over there. A look over there. Is this <laughs> doing enough on your questions if this was your podcast? What would? How would you feel if you didn't have long hair anymore? I'd for- really miss it. <laughs> <laughs> I like having long hair. Would you get a hair transplant? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I would find out a way. That's to. the way, yeah. But you have to have short hair for a period. Do you? Yeah. They can't do it long. Yeah. So you know if someone with long hair has short hair and then really great hair. They've Who had a hair transplant. Who's had that? Apparently, I don't know, but apparently some people think Ricky Gervais has it. Ah. Oh. Because the hairline's really straight sometimes. It's like oh. too straight. If someone has short hair, and then they'll be wearing a hat for a bit. Yeah, because it has to grow out the bits that you... How long does it take for it to grow out? Well, I guess also, you don't would know. you have to shave it, would you? Yeah, they have to put in the little the new hair onto the, the front. They can't just stick it in amidst the no, long guys. I think that'd be quite difficult, wouldn't it? Why can't they just run a focus you... down the lab? <laughs> <laughs> focus down the lab. Focus, you're in a lab. Are they putting loads of little mini hairs in? All right, fair enough. Well, great work, you guys, in the hair transplant world. Anyway, um, I'm sending you loads of love. I hope you've enjoyed Under the Skin from Luminary, and I hope you enjoy Jenny May Finn and her podcast. <laughs> Why don't you do one? People you can like do it at the new my, studio when we move. People like my tone of voice, don't they? they are, I don't know what's wrong with them. I, I didn't think that I was always self-conscious of my voice. I'd stick with that if I was you. Mm. <laughs> 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 right, well done. Thanks for listening to Under the Skin from Luminary with Russell Brand, produced by Jenny Mayfin, if you can call it that. Lots of love.